0: Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. talk. Good morning and a warm welcome to Money Talk. January went in a flash and we're now in the final week of the year of the rabbit. The year of the dragon is on its way. It's Monday the 5th of February and this is Peter Lewis. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, the US economy added 353,000 jobs in January, a stunning number that was well above economists' expectations of 187,000 and led investors to slash expectations for an interest rate cut in March. It was the largest increase in jobs since January 2023. The unemployment rate was 3.7%, below expectations of 3.8%, and average hourly earnings rose by 0.6% above economists' expectations expectations of 0.3% and that was the biggest rise since March 2022. Two month consumer confidence in the US has gained the most since the end of the Gulf War 33 years ago. The University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index for the US was revised higher to 79 in January from a preliminary reading of 78.9. That's the highest since July 2021. The two month gain in consumer sentiment in December and January was the most since the two months ended in March 1991, which came at the end of the Gulf War. Inflation expectations for the coming year fell. 2.9% To 2.9% in the latest survey from 3.1% in December and were the lowest in over three years. A group of investors has called on Samsung's de facto holding company to increase dividends and institute share buybacks as pressure mounts on South Korean companies to address their low valuations. US hedge fund White Box Advisors, UK fund City of London Investment Management and Seoul-based fund Ando Asset Management submitted their proposals on Friday ahead of Samsung's annual meeting in March. The funds hold a stake of just over 1% in the company. South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol has said boosting local stock valuations is one of his administration's top priorities. And mainland Chinese A shares swung sharply in the final hours of trading Friday before closing at a five-year low. The CSI 300 index plunged more than 3% at one point before closing down 1.2% at its lowest level since January 2019. For the week, it lost 4.6%, its biggest since 2022. Three straight years of losses have wiped more than $6 trillion U.S. dollars from the market value of Chinese and Hong Kong equities since a peak reached in 2021. On today's programme, I'm joined by Alex Wong, Director of Alex K.Y. Wong Asset Management, and Dan Kerrigan, CEO of Interactive Brokers Securities Japan. Uh, and providing a view on mainland China will be China specialist and author, Mark O'Neill. And if, I do enjoy reading your comments on the show. If you have any, please post them on my website at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, along with any questions that you may have.
1: <laughs> Peter
2: Lewis's Money Talk.
0: On Wall Street's Friday, the US S&P 500 closed at a record high. The blue chip index added 1.1% to close at 4,959. The Dow added 135 points. That's a third of a percent to 38,654. Also a record close and the Nasdaq Composite climbed 1.7% to 15,629, its best daily gain in more than three weeks. For the week, the S&P 500 added 1.4%. The Nasdaq Gained 1.1%, and the Dow rose 1.4%. It was the fourth week in a row of gains for the major U.S. benchmarks. And the gains come at the end of a mixed week for tech earnings. Uh, saw strong results from Amazon and Meta, but Apple and Alphabet disappointed investors. And Facebook's parent company, Meta, recorded the biggest ever one-day increase in a company's market capitalization, with its value soaring by 197 billion U.S. dollars in just one day. A social Media Group closed 20.3% higher, boosting its market cap to 1.2 trillion US dollars after its fourth quarter sales and outlook exceeded forecasts, alongside the surprise introduction of its first ever quarterly dividend. The well-about forecast US jobs report saw Treasuries unwind their week to date gains. The two year Treasury yield, which moves with interest rate expectations, soared 18 basis points on the day to 4.37%, and the two year was the only part of the yield curve higher on the week by a couple of basis points. The 10-year yield climbed 15 basis points to 4.02%. However, the 10-year was still down 12 basis points over the week. The US dollar index surged on Friday in the wake of the hot US jobs report. The yen saw the greatest losses. The dollar jumped 1.3% higher against the Japanese currency to 148.37 yen per dollar. And the Chinese Yuan finished the week 0.2% lower at 7.19 and a quarter renminbi per dollar in Shanghai. Gold settled 0.7% lower at $2,039 an ounce, reducing its weekly gain to 1%. Brent crude oil settled 1.7% lower at $77.33 per barrel. For the week, it was down 7.4%, the biggest weekly loss since early October. And as you heard earlier, it was a bad week for Chinese shares. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index fell 33 points or 0.2% for 15 to 15,534 for the week The benchmark index's loss came to 2.6%. And the Hang Seng Index is the worst performer now among major equity benchmarks this year, with a loss of 8.9% so far. The Shanghai Composite closed 1.5% lower at 2,730. For the week, the gauge slumped 6.2%. That's its worst week since 2018. The pain is all set to continue at the open this morning. Futures markets pointing to losses of over 200 points for the Hang Seng that's about one and a third percent. Uh, the index looks set to start the day trading at about 15,325. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk.
2: Peter much
0: to discuss this morning, so let's get cracking with it and welcome our regular Monday morning commentator, Alex Wong, director at Alex K.Y. Wong Asset Management. Morning, Alex. Hi, morning. Peter. And also joining us is Dan Kerrigan, who is the CEO of Interactive Brokers Securities over in Japan. Morning to you, Dan. Morning, Peter. Well, as you heard there earlier, the US economy added 350,000 jobs. It was described as a stunning number, well above expectations of 187,000. And it was the largest increase in jobs since January 2023, when the print was 482,000. The US economy has now added jobs for 37 consecutive months. The unemployment rate, that was 3.7%, below expectations of 3.8%, and despite widespread layoffs, average hourly earnings for all employees rose by 0.6%. That was also above expectations and the biggest rise since March 2022. And over the past 12 months, average hourly earnings have increased by 4.5% increasing from the previous month's revised upwards figure. And if you delve deeper into the numbers, the growth came from part-time employment, which hit its highest level since 2018. And full-time employment hit its lowest level in about a year. And the average number of hours worked, apart from the dip during the COVID pandemic, hit its lowest level since 2010. So, um, Alex and Dan, maybe Alex, you want to kick off. How, how is the US managing to create so many jobs or is this a bit of a statistical illusion?
3: Well, I think uh, it still shows the resilience of the economy. And I think uh, the trend of uh, more part-time jobs probably is due to uh, the change in culture. I think uh, many... Job seekers probably would like to do part-time as well. Uh, and also public companies would like to uh, have some uh, flexibility in their course. So I think uh, that is uh, the trend. So uh, we probably may see this kind of uh, culture to continue. But anyway, I think that the overall collar uh, job sector actually uh, may, is uh, much more resilient than it, we expected. So uh, probably uh, we may continue to see this kind of strength.
0: Mm. And what what's interesting is the number of people also who have two jobs um, as well. That seems to be another trend, doesn't it?
3: Yeah, right. This is called the slashing. I think. Uh, so uh, I think uh, uh, this is a change in culture. Probably we may may you see that, and 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 I think that this probably will uh, reflect the 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 the, the, the current uh, situation in, in in the world as well. Yeah. Dan, Dan, what are your thoughts?
1: Well, I think it's interesting, Peter. If you look, the November and December numbers were revised up mm-hmm. as well by 126,000 workers. So that, that's encouraging. I just think it's interesting with my uh, experience of talking to Europeans particularly. They're, they've been critical of the hiring practices of American companies. And my point to them was it's easy to hire people in the United States. And the reason the job market is so liquid and flexible is because we don't have these job security uh, items baked in it's easy to fire people now it might sound heartless but it what you're really saying is it makes it easy for people to change jobs hmm. and that's the reason why really structurally america's got lower unemployment rates than we see in, in other parts of the world so it, as opposed to being heartless capitalists i actually think that the american labor practices are actually very much pro-worker and i think that's been borne out here the only caveat there, as you mentioned, Peter, that that they, uh, the jo- uh, the wages are up four and a half percent year on year, which is a nice number, but that's a little bit higher than I think what the Fed wants. I mean, they're they're targeting two percent inflation here, so we'll have to see. I still think that the hours worked is is the only sort of fly in the ointment here. Uh, it seems as though companies are hiring, but they're they're actually working fewer hours than what we'd seen in, in recent uh, years. Here, so that, that there might be the possibility of some layoffs later in this calendar year. That which is, was really the only... Which is odd, isn't see. it?
0: It's, it's odd to see that, that the, the, the average, uh, the, the number of estimates of hours um, down now to what we saw during the pandemic, which is sort of really explaining why wages, I suppose, are going up average hourly earnings, which is a, a fraction, of course, does depend upon the number of hours you actually work.
1: Well, that seems to me like it's a bit of labor hoarding at, at people are worried they're not gonna have enough uh, workers so they're maybe getting them on board, but they have to find things for them to do once they're once they're in in the, inside the companies mm. so but yeah, the headline figure was fantastic as we've seen that there's no way that the Fed is gonna raise or sorry beg your pardon cut rates in in march that's that's gone and as far as the impact on Japan, you saw dollar yen move from one forty six to one forty eight so a continuation of that trend, there's certainly not going to be a cut uh, at the March meeting.
0: Alex, the um, the Fed said last week, Jerome Powell said last week, that he wanted greater confidence um, before he declared victory over inflation and starts to cut borrowing costs. Um, Again, having seen this data, presumably he is going to be a bit worried about wage price inflation here and the impact that could have on the economy overall.
3: Yeah, I think of course, uh, wage probably would be the one to to watch right now. I think commodities actually fail to move much. Actually, we are seeing, uh, continued pressure in the oil uh, last week, and then I think China probably would export deflation this year. So, um, on the on the prices of goods, I think uh, the inflation pressure actually is gone, but uh, wage probably would be the um they want to watch. Uh, so um, he probably would still be uh, uh, cautious on this. So uh, I think that uh, the only way part on innovation is from Rage. Uh, other parts, I think, uh, are already cooling off.
0: This, this is very different from the, the type of inflation we saw in the 1970s and 1980s, isn't it, when it was about demand and, and wages were shooting up to try and meet that. This is more about disruptions to supply chains and and spending patterns that have changed because of COVID. So it's quite an unusual inflation situation, I presume, for the Fed.
3: Yeah, I think so. Yeah. But of course, I think uh, uh, we it will still be affected by the PPI later on. Uh, right now, if you look at the PPI across the world, actually, they are under pressure already. This is a CPI worrying, uh, and also um, it is supported by wage increase. So later on, I think uh, inflation will cool off because of uh, the situation in China. So I'm, I'm not too worried about the cooling off of inflation despite the current pattern.
0: Mm. and consumers pretty resilient aren't they um they're they're um, holding up and if anything their confidence now is increasing as they're seeing inflation come down which presumably this is going to become a bit of a self-reinforcing spiral
3: yeah but i think uh, hopefully uh we have uh a some natural deflationary force like uh the, the, the dominance of e commerce and also uh, competitions are from uh, from the world. I think the China probably may may export some deflationary pressure and also um, the emergence of uh, certain platforms like Xin and and, and Tam actually would help as well.
0: Mm. Dan, this is sort of um, an an odd period, really, isn't it? Where the Fed, I suppose, has got to remain um, cautious because um, the, the the jobs market, although it's good for workers, um, this must be quite a big concern for for the Fed overall, and in terms of what it does about interest rates.
1: Yes, and uh, it's interesting. It's Americans. As long as they have jobs, they'll go out and spend. We've been notoriously bad about uh, saving. But the the reason is because you know, a lot of Americans have uh, brokerage accounts. So the, the savings rate is less of a concern. But, yeah, as long as Americans have jobs, they're going to go and spend. They're not going to postpone uh, taking the vacation or, or taking a trip or making a run to Walmart or Costco. So mm-hmm. with consumption still is almost like three quarters of the economy in the US. And I, I don't see that changing anytime soon. Mm.
0: This is all going to get very political, though, isn't it, as the year goes on? We already saw Donald Trump poking his head above the parapet on on Sunday saying uh, that the, uh, the the Fed, Jerome Powell, was political and he was going to lower rates to boost President Joe Biden's electoral chances. Um, that There's always a risk here that the markets could get upset by this.
1: That's true, and the Fed is supposed to be independent. We know that that's not really the case in recent years, when we've had Fed chairmen sitting next to politically important people during things like the State of the Union address. But uh, I think Paul is going to continue to be data driven. He's yes, he he was an appointed uh, guy by by a Democrat, but. Um, I think there are certain things have to remain above politics, and I think Biden's got his own problems. Um, speaking of President Biden, he's at a an approval rate of 38%. That's the lowest of any incumbent right now. I don't even think a that a cut in rates is going to be able to help him at this point. So there's a, some smoke there, but I really don't think that there's much to look at.
0: It's odd, isn't it? Because the data, particularly on the labor market, is all looking pretty good. But for some reason, Americans don't feel so great about the economy, and they're certainly not willing to give President Biden any of the credits.
1: No, certainly not. I, the people that, that I speak to are saying, well, the economy is doing what it's doing more in spite of Biden rather than because of him. So, And their concerns, again, about obviously both candidates are are flawed, but there is real concern about uh, Biden's ability to completely serve out his second term. So that's not going to go away. It's going to be a very, very long campaign season in the United States.
0: Mm. Alex, the other thing that uh, Donald Trump was talking about in his interview um, yesterday on NBC was um, floating the idea of more than 60 percent tariffs on Chinese imports. How seriously do we need to take this?
3: i think we need to take it very seriously uh first of all um the 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 current situation in hong kong is already reflecting this kind of worry uh if you look at the price of wuxi uh, actually it's uh, still down a lot uh, even after the recent slump so i think uh, people are very worrying about this and if you look at exporter sectors actually they got the value so fast Uh, companies like like uh, uh, Xiaomi and also those hands uh, um, handset manufacturers actually are all under pressure on these kind of worries. I think people are getting out first and then uh, and then and then to ast- and then assess the situation. So right now, uh, this worry actually is uh, already in the market in Hong Kong.
0: So where do we go from here? Now the, the CSI 300 is at a five-year um, low once again, the Hang Seng Index down 9% so far this year. We had the CSRC come out yesterday and once again say uh, that they were going to step in and support the market without actually saying how they were going to do this or, or what they were going to do. But it just seems that investors are just not interested anymore in, in you know, these support measures.
3: Yeah, I think uh, Hong Kong, Hong Kong, China actually is near a confident crisis now. We are, we probably may see the 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 decline to accelerate uh, quite soon, because um, right now people are devaluing those exporters, and if you look at the consumer stock sector, they got devalued since uh, last uh, December. So um, people are a bit worried about price cut competitions and the deflation pressures in China. So that will affect those consumer stocks. And the tech stocks actually already done so much. And, and actually, if you compare the performance of tech stocks to the two sectors that we mentioned, they are already uh, a little bit better. But I think uh, these three sectors are co- probably may still continue to under pressure. So um, those support issues, I think, that may only help uh, SOE. So we may continue to see uh, uh, safe haven buying into uh, those uh, big caps uh, SOE uh, that will help to... Slow down the, the the fall in the index, but I think uh, overall, uh, if you look at individual stocks performance, uh, that will reflect a even worse picture, and mm-hmm. and and probably we may see the acceleration of the decline quite soon.
0: It did start to look quite chaotic, didn't it, on Friday? We had the, uh, the index down, what, 3.5% at one stage. Then it looked like the national team stepped in to try and support it, but it still closed uh, quite a bit uh, lower. This is starting um, to get presumably worrying now for the authorities if they're not worried already.
3: Yeah, uh, but uh, the, the, the problem is that the KPI probably will be the index. So uh, and and they probably can help to stabilize uh, the decline in certain sectors like those are mega banks or their telecoms or oil. But I think uh, other parts of the market they can do nothing. So I think uh, uh, it will still um uh it would be we probably still see the the decline to to happen in in uh despite their help.
0: Mm. And if you're an investor, I mean, if you're a foreign investor, you do have the choice, I suppose, of getting out of China, which a lot of foreign investors have done and looking elsewhere in Asia, like Japan or maybe India. But if you're an emerging market investor, you don't have that choice, do you? China's just such a huge part of the MSCI Emerging Markets Index that you can't avoid it. So, So what do you do?
3: I think, uh, like I've said, I probably will stick to those uh, SOE, the bigger ones, uh, like oil and telecoms, and and even some banks. I think uh, they they are probably uh, uh, more supported by the uh, government policies, and also they are raising dividends, and and their business model actually is uh, more resilient. So I think uh, you can just only stick to those uh, uh, SOEs in the meantime. Mm. Dan,
0: tell me about Japan. I mean, obviously, Japan is a beneficiary from this, isn't it? Just not being China is a good thing um, at the moment. And domestic Chinese investors um, uh, are, are trying to buy into Japan through ETFs in any other way that they can find uh, um, from, the, from the mainland.
1: That that they are. And that's really the, the first step that we started to see last year. It was just get me out of China. Where do I park my funds? But uh, as I've mentioned before, Peter, there there are enough – positive things happening here organically within the Japanese economy and the the financial markets that uh, things are really setting up well for us over the next, say, three years. That's about as far out as as I can see. So just between some of the reforms that companies themselves are doing to try to improve their capital allocation uh, are interesting. And then the, the head of the Japan Exchange has, as we know, come out with a name and shame campaign for those firms that are listed which are trading below book they have to submit a plan to improve the returns that they've got for their shareholders and that's just kicked off recently we've seen activist investors here as well but they've gained momentum and i think they're not just foreigners at this point there are actually domestic activist investors here which i think is a new dynamic here so a lot of these reforms are coming from within japan and previously shareholders had been down on the, the totem pole. They're starting to move up. And actually, if you believe, as we've been told historically, that Japanese companies are run for stakeholders, well, as we build out an equity ownership culture among the average citizens in Japan, then it would make sense for these companies to indeed be more accountable to shareholders. And we can share the returns for everybody, not just a, a few narrow stakeholders. So it's, a, it's an exciting time to be here. And I, I think we're really starting to see... Uh, a, a gradual change in the way that people view investing. And I think it helps that with the demographic situation here in Japan, people have to trust their own market a bit more. And we're starting to see that already.
0: Are there worries about banks? We're seeing, not just in Japan, but in the US, in Europe, some concerns about exposure um, to US real estate, commercial real estate. We saw it with Ayazora um, Bank in Tokyo plunged almost Uh, 16%. Is that a a concern that may um, accelerate or is this just a a one-off exception there?
1: Well, I I don't think that there's going to be much contagion among the the financial system. I I guess the way you could step back and look at it is if you couldn't figure out after COVID that commercial property was going to go in through a tough period, then we can't help you. I mean, this is sort of shame on the people that got caught wrong-footed on this. Um, we've known this. People have not returned to work. Working from home is, is the new normal now. And even though COVID is over, people are still going to look to work from home for part of, of their, their, uh, their career now. So we do think that there is going to keep, be continued softness in commercial real estate globally. This isn't anything to do necessarily with the U.S. or, or Japan. But the people that got wrong-footed, you, you would have thought that they would have paid a little bit more attention to this mega tr- mega shift in the in the trend for how people work. Alex, when you look at
0: Japan from oh, offshore, does um does the uh the, does the market environment in Japan look compelling uh, to you?
3: Yeah, I think uh, yes. Uh, Japan actually is improving on uh, corporate governance issues, and also I think uh, uh, it is also benefiting from the higher man- manufacturing sector. People are looking for those uh, high-end high end names uh, in, the, in, in that area as well. And also, I think uh, people like uh, those um, anime-related uh, companies uh, because uh, they actually are expanding their influence across the globe. So I think uh Japan actually is an interesting interesting place to look right now. Yeah.
0: And also I suppose in some ways, if you want to have some exposure to China, um you could do it through Japan, couldn't you? Because there are stocks there that are um quite exposed to China that you could buy without all the political risk of going to buy Chinese
3: stocks. Yeah, right. That is a situation that happened in Europe because if you look at if you buy Hermes, actually, they you have already recovered most of your, your losses uh recently. So I think that people actually would uh, look to buy those names which are operating in China, uh, in, in other parts of the world right now.
0: And what do you make of South Korea? That that led gains um, on Friday in Asia on hopes of Japan-style reforms um, coming to, to South Korea. I mean, South Korea said on Thursday it wants to enact shareholder-friendly policies to end the Korea um, discount and uh, it's going to be a priority uh, for, for the government. Uh, to improve shareholder returns. This looks like it's very much following the model that Japan's been doing over the past year or so.
3: Yeah, I think uh, that's probably a little bit interesting. But uh, of course, Korean market is uh, more influenced by a few names. This is not like Japan. Japan actually uh, does not have uh, too, much, uh, too many dominance uh, names, and names. But, uh, but in Korea, probably LG and, and Samsung probably uh, are so important. This is more like uh, a, a market uh, in Taiwan. So I think uh, we probably may see some revaluation. But in the meantime, it would be very volatile. It's probably like the initial stage of the Japan reform.
0: Mm. Dan, does this all sound very familiar? South Korea wants to do the same thing now.
1: Yes, in the words of the Smith, stop me if you've heard this one before. Yes. So I'm happy to see that Japan can be a template for the rest of the region.
0: Would, would it work in South Korea in the same way that it has worked in, uh, in Japan?
1: I can't touch that one. I, I, I don't want to upset some of my Korean colleagues. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what do you think, Alex? Can it work in the same way in South Korea that it did in Japan?
3: I don't know. I think it probably may take some time. Uh, and, and, and 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 the point is that Japan is, I'm not sure, it's, it's more more dominant by a few names. So um, mm. we need to see whether Samsung LG can do that kind of things. And also, we probably need uh, Warren Buffett to come in.
0: <laughs> yes, that would help, wouldn't it? Buy a few Korean stocks yeah. like he did in Japan. Tell me about the um, the, the US. US stocks at a, a record high. I'm interested to to talk a little bit about the Magnificent Seven because we're starting to see the Magnificent Seven diverge now, aren't we? Into good Magnificent Seven stocks and those that are not so magnificent anymore.
3: Yeah, I think uh, 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 because of of, of the uh, uh, delay in uh, wake-up expectations, uh, we probably see divergence in the whole market now, uh, and and probably we are we are led by three uh, in, in 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 the U.S. right now: uh, NVIDIA, Microsoft, and Meta. I think those three are the real dominant AI names uh, in 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 the world right now, and probably they could continue to lead the market. And the other four, I think, of course, Amazon are also strong. Uh, but uh, the 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 concept is not that um dominant. I think uh Tesla and Apple probably may just uh, consolidate. But I think uh, we probably may see uh, buying interest to spread out into those into other software names uh, because uh, they also would be supported by the AI. I uh, with the delay in the wake expectations, I think the major theme right now would be the it still be the AI application. So um. And 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 other sectors in in the U.S. actually may have some uh, uh, correction pressure because of the the higher bond yield.
0: Mm, but it's not enough anymore, is it? Just to say you're in AI, the investors are now saying, "Prove how you're going to make money from AI. Show us where the earnings are."
3: Yeah, uh, uh, and 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 I think uh, not 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 necessarily. I think they still expect uh, the monetization to accelerate later on. Right now, um because um meta deliver on much stronger than expected advertising uh revenue, so that's an exception uh rather than a norm i think uh and actually Microsoft people are not um too happy uh actually early uh after they announced the results, but this is also still led by the renewed strength in the and also Meta. Mm-hmm. uh so I think uh people will be still have some patience. But um, uh, we are probably uh, uh, not seeing um, that kind of patience in the EV sector. So uh, probably that is affecting the uh, speculations uh, on other growth concepts.
0: If you had to pick just one of the Magnificent Seven to invest in, which one would you pick?
3: Oh, I would still be uh, sticking to probably uh, Microsoft, I think.
0: Right. Why Microsoft?
3: Oh, it is... uh... Very dominant AI applications. Hmm. I've said uh, Matt probably a little bit overboard, although it it has a lower valuation, but it is affected by the acceleration in the advertising revenue, which is, uh, of course, uh, very stunning. But I think uh, that may not be um, sustainable. So I think uh, right now, uh, Microsoft would be the safer one to go. go. Dan, we're in. in. Sorry, Dan, yeah.
1: As well, I I remember reading something about 25 years ago that the next Microsoft is probably going to be Microsoft. You've got to realize again they moved away from Windows. I mean, they monetized Windows, but their next trick they were first to to really go into the cloud. And now they've got some of the smartest people in the world there. And, And they're you could say that they're a private equity firm in some ways in terms of the new businesses that they're looking to incubate. So they're not just going to continue to be a one-trick pony. They're constantly reinventing themselves, which I think is what their edge is. Mm.
0: So. And it's interesting, those in the Magnificent Seven that are dependent on sales in China, like Tesla, um, like Apple, they're starting to suffer now. Mm. Uh, This is an important earnings season, isn't it? Because if you take out those magnificent – well, if you you just take the S&P 500, earnings increases looking like they're on track for about 1.6% in the fourth quarter. But if you take out those magnificent seven, earnings are down over 8%. I mean, it just tells you how dominant um, these, these seven stocks really have been so far.
1: We're having this conversation using Apple products, Microsoft products. We're going to be on Facebook later today. We'll be, on Amazon. We'll be using Amazon as well. I mean, it's just you, you could do an accounting of your daily life and how much of your waking hours are spent using the products and platforms of the Magnificent Seven. You know. And I, I think it, it would be an interesting way of just looking at how you position your portfolio as well.
0: Mm. And Nvidia, of course, we mustn't forget uh, Nvidia. That's still um, uh, an investor's favourite in the uh, in the space. What about some other themes, though? Are there other themes emerging? I'm wondering. You know, one of the things been hearing about is the uh, the the theme of buying uh, companies involved in weight loss drugs, like Eli Lilly, and um, over in Europe, Nova Norvisk. I mean, is that is that a a big theme at the moment?
1: It would seem like it. Lilly's done extremely well. The question is is what's going to happen uh, when you stop taking the drug. Do you put the weight just back on? I mean, this is this is nothing new. Weight loss and hair regrowth have been themes that in the U.S. For, for many years, decades, you could say. So um, I still think that there are there are more questions than answers here. I mean, the, the trials have been actually quite good for both Novo Nordisk and, and for Lilly. But the question is, what are the side effects? And I, again, I, I don't think these drugs are covered by insurance in most countries either. So... Still early days, but yeah, the, the trials are looking actually quite promising.
0: Alex, is that a theme that you're interested in?
3: No, I, uh, actually, I'm not, uh, because because pharma actually is uh, always difficult to to invest. Uh, mm-hmm. It has a very uh, big up fund, and then of course, the if you, if if something pay out, then you will have a very strong revenues. But um, you. Do not uh, have a very strong convictions that that this trend could continue for for a very long time, and and if you look at the since payer, actually they have uh, come down so much uh, after that uh, short term spike. So I think uh, this is um, I, I I actually do not have uh, too much convictions in this sector.
0: Mm-hmm. What about banks? Uh, are there, are you seeing signs of maybe regional banking concerns rear their ugly head again?
3: Uh, probably, but uh, the big banks actually will not be affected. Uh, so um, people probably would still be sticking to those big banks. Uh, they they know that they would always be the winner. If you look at the price of UBS after the crisis, actually it has uh, uh, up, been up more than fifty percent uh, since the European uh, since the Credit Suisse um, uh, uh, mergers. So I think uh, people are uh, always looking at the big banks and and know that the regional banks or the smaller banks actually are not that safe.
0: Okay, well, great to speak to you both. Thank you very much for your thoughts this morning. You heard there, Alex Wong, who's director of Alex K Y Wong Asset Management, and Dan Kerrigan, who is the CEO of Interactive Brokers Securities in Japan.
2: Peter Lewis is Money
0: Talk. I'm joined now by China specialist and author Mark O'Neill. Good morning, Mark. Good morning. Now we had a survey from um, the American Chamber of Commerce uh, in China, their annual China business, business climate uh, survey. One of the things uh, that they noted quite specifically was overcapacity was emerging as an issue uh, for several sectors, um, and Chinese policymakers increasing lending and industrial subsidies in an attempt to uh, remove uh, to try and improve lackluster growth. They quoted in the report they said, "This is a problem that's here to." Stay. And it's one that businesses are going to have to adapt to. And frankly, so are countries. It looks like this issue of overcapacity, um, as the American Chamber of Commerce says, is not going to go away anytime soon.
2: Yeah, it's extremely serious because in China 2025, you know, this master plan that China issued a few years ago, it identified 10 sectors in which Chinese companies must have a dominant share of the domestic market and an important share of the global market. So these 10 sectors are all receiving government support. That means preferential policies, uh, preferential loans, and in some cases, uh, you know, just funding. And of these 10 sectors, three are electric cars, lithium batteries, and, uh, and, sorry, one second, what's the solar Solar panels. Thurnal pounds, right, three. So what's the result? The result means that in China, many of these companies are set up with support from local governments um, and they start producing. And because of the money they're receiving, the, 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 the prices of these products are not reflecting the market. They're reflecting the money they're receiving from the government. So there's great overcapacity. And if we take the example of... Uh, cars, for example. China can produce 41 to 50 million cars a year. Now, it sells 23 million cars a year. So the balance is 27 million cars a year. And that's the equivalent of the US and European production put together. So that's gives you an example of the size of the, of the capacity. So mm-hmm. in China now, we have 140 auto producers of whom only 40 really should survive. But because of this policy environment and the funding, there are 140 companies. So, of course, exports are essential to this model because you have so much overproduction in China, the Chinese market cannot absorb all this production. So you have to export. And with the trade friction between the US and China, the EU is now the most important market because it's the most open and because it's the biggest. So at the moment, the two most uh, most frictious products are electric cars and solar panels. So it, it, the situation is so serious that the European Commission now is doing an investigation into Chinese EVs and it will give a report probably about September And it's now considering one on solar panels because the European manufacturers say if nothing is done, that European industry will shut down. Mm.
0: And and if you were a European or American company um, with a factory on the mainland, operating from the mainland, would you qualify for any of these subsidies?
2: Uh, In electric vehicles, yes, you would. So what Volkswagen has done is they have they have lagged behind the Chinese companies in making electric vehicles uh, in China and around the world, so they're building a very large factory in Hefei, which will be their major e v producer in China, and they're receiving subsidies because this is a priority sector mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, what
0: is the solution to this? Because economically, if you overproduce and your domestic market um, is not big enough to um, absorb um, all that overcapacity, then the only way out of it is to export it. So, so what is the solution?
2: Well, the, what the Europeans would like, of course, is for China to produce its cars or its, its lithium and batteries or its solar panels in Europe, because that would employ uh, European workers. They would be within the EU. Um, and the CATL, which is China's biggest battery producer, they're building an enormous plant in Hungary. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's an outcome EU is quite happy with. But otherwise, I think mm-hmm. Europe would either have to ask for quotas on the exports, or if there are not quotas, then they'll have to impose tariffs on imports of EVs.
0: And are there any signs that China is cooperating with the EU on this at all to try and reduce um, the overproduction?
2: Well, uh, the Chinese rhetoric is quite fierce. What they say is we are the world leader in electric vehicles because of our uh, companies, their excellent engineers, their investment in new technology. You in Europe, you've been slow, you've been far behind. Why should we be punished for our entrepreneurial skills? Mm. They also say that China is an enormous market for uh, European automakers, especially, you know, the German ones, BMW, Volkswagen, Mercedes. And it's, it's been so for many years. So we've given you a huge share of the Chinese market. So why should you cut us out of the European auto market?
0: Mm. So the problem is, though, this is a, a feature of Chinese industrial policy, isn't it? Um, so this is going to be very difficult um, to eliminate because this is the way industry works on the mainland with sort of government orchestrated consolidation and support uh, for companies in uh, in favoured um, cities. So although um, they are grabbing market share, of course, the, a lot of these companies aren't very profitable. It's a fierce competitive market, isn't it?
2: Oh, yes. And uh, of the 140 automakers in China, I mean, many will go bankrupt. They can't mm-hmm. possibly survive. But that, that means an enormous waste of money, you know, in, in, in the loans given to them and in the, the factories will closed down. Um, yeah, you're right. This is going to be a feature, and I would say it's going to get worse because President Xi Jinping is a orthodox Marxist. Uh, he believes in state planning. He believes in the state directing industry in certain directions. And under Deng Xiaoping and Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, we had a much more of a mixed economy. So, of course, the state companies were very important, but we had a very vibrant private sector. Mm. But uh, President Xi prefers the state sector. So in the future, there's going to be even more funds and resources directed to the state companies, which will make this overcapacity worse and the private companies will not be so well treated.
0: Mm. I, I mean, I saw that uh, at its peak, one electric vehicle attracted up to 19,000 US dollars worth of, of subsidies. So tax breaks, cheap land, energy and bank credits for for manufacturers. So I suppose it's not a surprise that you get these huge numbers of companies emerging, churning out um, low cost um, sort of vehicles, which they then presumably can't sell. And they, they give them away to um, sort of taxi fleets or something.
2: Well, yes, but we mustn't be too critical because, of course, the future is electric vehicles. Mm. So um, uh, China identified this 10 years ago. So, I mean, in, in, in Europe also, we have encouraged the production of electric vehicles, but we've not done it with such energy and with such aggressiveness in funding. So, you know, in 10 years from now, there will only be electrical vehicles on the road. So... Do so, you what I mean? We, we we have to congratulate BYD and the and the other the other leaders in China in what they've done in electrical vehicles, and I'm sure many of their cars will be on the European roads in ten years' time. The question is, how do we manage the transition? How do we protect the automotive industry in Europe, which is employs eight hundred thousand people? Um, you know, the, the transition has to be gradual and uh, there has to be enough space to the European makers to, 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 to transition into producing EVs.
0: So it will need then the Chinese government to reduce these subsidies to their manufacturers. Are there signs that they're doing that?
2: No, no. Because, as you know, the political environment, unfortunately, is bad. And it's very bad between the US and China, between... China and the EU is better. Relations are more cordial than they are with America. Mm. But, uh, for example, at the EU summit, China EU summit in December last year, there was no progress. So, you know, the, the mindset of China now is, is more less favorable than it used to be. Mm. Um, now is the era of China, the, the era of China becoming a manufacturing global power, um, it's less willing to be accommodating. Mm-hmm. So this is
0: unfortunate. Isn't the European Union just as bad, though? Although China provides a lot of subsidies to its manufacturers, um, the Europeans provide subsidies as well. They tend to do it, though, to the consumers. But it's the same thing, isn't it? It's providing subsidies. It doesn't matter whether you provide it to the, the manufacturer or the consumer. A subsidy is a subsidy.
2: Well, yes, of course. and. <laughs> Of course, the Chinese side says this, uh, and they they have reason. But the, the level of subsidy, financing, tax breaks, and so forth in China is very much bigger, and it's a you know it's a national policy decided in Beijing, and it's implemented all over. But friends with whom I've talked in 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 the UK and France, they say, yes, people buy electric vehicles, but the 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 whole infrastructure is not in place. There are not enough charging centers. Um, the, the prices are still high, you know, still, it's still far behind China. So, this reflects the fact that in China, the subsidy and funding system is much bigger and much better planned.
0: Mm. And, and there's another issue when it comes to electric vehicles because the most expensive component is the battery. And there, China's building up a very big lead as well, isn't it, in, in battery production?
2: Well, indeed. I mean, this this huge plant in in Hungary is built by CATL, which is the biggest producer. And, of course, again, China is reaping the benefits of long-term planning Mm. because what they've done is they've secured the raw materials that are needed, especially lithium, cobalt. You know, they've acquired mines. They've made agreements with producers in Africa, South America, to acquire these materials. So now they have a strong lead in, in the production of batteries and the European companies have no choice but to buy their batteries. Mm-hmm. So here too, uh, Europe is, is well behind China. So
0: what is the outcome likely to be here? Because this is a standoff, isn't it? Because China's not going to back down and certainly not going to change its industrial policy, which produces these industry leaders. Uh, the EU can't possibly allow its uh, its its car manufacturers to go to the wall, given how many people they employ and how big a part of the economy out they are. So what's the solution? Because it seems when they met um, in Beijing, European and Chinese leaders, they didn't really get very far, did they?
2: No, so I think what's going to happen is it will remain a trade conflict. I think the EU will uh, impose tariffs or other market barriers on China. If they do that, then China will retaliate. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've already retaliated on cognac, you know, the French mm-hmm. brandy. So, yeah, China will retaliate, put trade trade barriers or tariffs on European imports. Yeah, I I think this will be a long-running trade conflict, and I think it will spread out of EVs into other goods.
0: Mark, thank you very much indeed for that. My pleasure. Thank you very much. That's China specialist and author Mark O'Neill.
2: You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk.
0: Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more details about some of the topics I've been talking about today, along with information on other headlines and market moves, on my daily newsletter. Take a look at Peter Lewis, moneytalk.substack.com. I'll be back with another show tomorrow. Joining me then will be Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, Frederick Chu, Managing Director at Magnum Research, and our US economics correspondent, writer, and broadcaster, Barry Wood. See you tomorrow. Money Talk.